your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be wrapping up our series in Thessalonians this morning, and we've been in this book for six or seven weeks now. We'll be talking today about, drumroll please, the Antichrist. You say, oh gosh, this is my first time in this church and they're going to get weird. Yep, yep we are. Uh Uh-huh. I brought a friend today, and they're talking about the Antichrist, you know. Uh, no, it's not going to get weird here today. And we, we, we are preaching the entire uh, book of First and Second Thessalonians, and sometimes it's easier to skip over passages that are, passages that are a little bit harder and, and have a little bit uh, darker theme. But we want to uh, take in the whole counsel of Scripture today. And I also lost the game of rock, paper, scissors, and that's why I have to preach it. So... Uh, if you're in your Bibles today, we'll be talking about that man of lawlessness and the effect that he's going to have and what's going to take place in the future. Uh, back in 2006, a book was written that has become one of the most influential books of the 21st century, and that book was entitled The God Delusion. Now, don't put that uh, slide up yet, Tina. We're going to save that for just a second. But entitled The God Delusion, it was by a leading atheist, a a scientist from uh, Oxford University in England named Richard Dawkins. It became a very influential work uh, among folks who were becoming atheists or were thinking about becoming an atheist and all over college campuses everywhere, The God Delusion has been read, along with some other books like uh, God is Not Great and some of these uh, more militant atheists that are around the world today. Interestingly enough, our atheists' friends often call themselves the more rational, the more reasoned, the more skeptical folks. They are just responding in their minds to the evidence that science or reason presents and arriving at the conclusion that there is no God, never mind that brilliant people like Francis Collins, the leader of the Human Genome Project, is a born-again Christian, or, or the fact that another biologist on the staff of Oxford University, Alistair McGrath, one of the greatest biologists and theologians in the world, loves God with all his heart. Never mind that the evidence has led people in some different directions. Atheists would like to tell you that they are more reasoned, rational, and have a greater mind than you do. And the only reason that they've arrived at these conclusions about there being no God is a dispassionate look at the facts. But a few years ago, Dawkins and some of his contemporaries at humanism.org and humanist.org decided that they were going to go on the offensive, but what they did is they really played their hands in a way that we have never seen before. These dispassionate, rational, reasoned atheists decided that they would start preaching, and the message of atheism came through loud and clear on what was called the Atheist Bust Campaign, which took place in Great Britain and all over Europe. I have a picture of the side of one of these buses with uh, Richard Dawkins, and maybe you've seen this, I brought this to your attention before, and one of his friends in front of a bus there in England, and the great word from the atheist, the gospel of atheism says, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now, where is the reasoned, rational, just looking at the evidence side of atheism? That seems to me like a truth claim. Seems to me like that is an ideological idea. The idea, and you could take that down, Tina, the idea that if there is no God, I really don't have anybody that I answer to. And if I don't have anybody to answer to, I can do whatever I want. 
Our atheist friends throughout the world have played their hand with the atheist bus campaign. They've let us know what the real underlying purpose is behind atheism. It's the ability to do what you want to do when you want to do it, therefore God is not real. This, my friends, can lead us to a place of lawlessness. The idea that there is no moral obligation upon the human spirit. There is no reason that any of us should be better than the people we are today, so let's stop worrying and enjoy ourselves. This is the spirit that Paul is going to talk about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now you say, were there a lot of atheists back around 100 AD? And the, the answer is yes, there were some. But in the time of the Greek and the Roman gods, it was very easy to live this same type of lawlessness by doing something different. All they had to do in that day and age was look towards their gods. Capricious, angry, vindictive, over-sexualized, exploitative gods. So if you were going to per pursue a lifestyle of lawlessness, it was easy to say, well, that's what Zeus does. That's what Jupiter does. That's what Apollo does. So I can as well. Paul's going to talk to us about lawlessness today and the man in whom lawlessness is going to be revealed. We know him as the Antichrist. Are you in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? Here we go. Verse 1 through 10 is what we'll be reading today. As to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by the Spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was still with you? And you know what is now restraining him, so that he may be revealed when his time comes. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who now restrains it is removed." And then the lawless one will be revealed with whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power and signs and lying wonders and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The Apostle Paul paints a pretty bleak picture of what things are going to look like just prior to the coming of the Lord. Now, why does he do this? What picture is he trying to paint here? Well, Paul's going to give us some really interesting future theology in the midst of trying to reassure the second Thessalonians of something. It seems from the context that, context that some blockhead has gone ahead and either preached or written a letter to the Thessalonians saying, Jesus has returned and you missed it. And they were concerned. Now, for those of us today who've studied a little theology, there are two different types of understanding. I, there's actually three, but we'll just go two, of what's going to happen at the Lord's return. Many Christians believe that the Lord is returning twice, that he's going to come and he's going to rapture the church, and he is going to take us out. Rapture means snatch away in the Latin. He is going to snatch away the church out of the world, and then a seven-year period of judgment called the tribulation is coming, and then we will return the church with Christ, and then Christ is going to uh, judge and make all things new. And the other side of, of Christianity, uh, in terms of this theology, says, oh no, Christians will be here 
during that judgment period. Christ is just returning once, and all of this is going to happen instantaneously. Either way, whatever the theology was for these Thessalonians that day, somebody had gotten their ear and said, Jesus came, you missed it, which is terrifying, right? Now, I was raised in this church, and, and, and we were taught about the rapture, that the Lord would come, come and take us out, and then the tribulation would happen, and that's what we were taught. So I remember sitting in children's church, and, and, and they actually had, our, had us do our rapture calls. Was anybody here for that besides me? You're like, I was, but I'm not going to do it, right? And, and I remember our, our children's church leader saying, do your rapture call, and all us kids, ah, you know, and we weren't sure if that was excitement or terror, but either way, we were, we were excited about that. But I remember, and I know this has happened to a ton of you who were raised in churches where they taught the rapture and, and believed that Christ was coming two times instead of just the one. And one day you woke up, and this happened to me. I woke up, and there was nobody home, right? And I go downstairs. Mom's not there. Dad's not there. My brothers aren't there. I'm really concerned. I'm calling, hey, hey, is somebody here? And what do you think immediately if you've been raised in a church that preaches the rapture? Jesus has come, and I got left, right? That's what I was thinking. So you know what I did? I was a very logical kid. I called my grandma. Because I knew I might get left, but grandma would not be left. And so when grandma picked up, we were all set. I knew that the rapture had not come, and that I was safe, and that I had not been left behind. All right? So that's what's concerning the Thessalonians. But once again, for the second time in these two books, Paul says, listen, you guys know that there's some things that are going to take place before the return of Christ, and they are going to be so clear and so evident to people who are Christians that you just don't need to worry that you've missed it ever, regardless of if he's coming twice or coming once. You don't need to be concerned that Christ will forget you. But this time, Paul talks about a different set of circumstances, and that's the idea in verse 3 and 4 that there's going to be a rebellion followed by the rise or concurrent with the rise of someone called the lawless one or, or what the book of 1 John calls the Antichrist. That this rebellion against God is going to take place and it is going to be so clear that the world now stands in open defiance to the God of the Bible. Now, some of you in your Bibles may have, instead of the word rebellion, the apostasy. And apostasy means literally to stand away from an open defiance of. To get away from the God of the Bible and to say his morals, his statutes, his laws, his ordinances are so far from anything that we want, we do not like that God. That is the rebellion that Paul is speaking of here. Jesus gives us a little bit of this picture in Matthew chapter 24. If you have your Bibles and can flip quickly, you're welcome to go there. Matthew chapter 24, verse 10 and following, talks about this rebellion in this way. It says, Then many will fall away, according to Jesus, and they will betray one another, and they will hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. So Jesus is saying, listen, folks, when this rebellion takes place, when, when people are standing away and apart from the God of Scripture in a really pronounced way, I want you to know that that's not just going to be the world, the folks that are out there who don't know Jesus. He says in verse 10, many of us will fall away. Now that should give us pause. Many people who are professing Christians who say they know Jesus are going to join in the rebellion 
and push away the God that they have known or have known of. And this is why this passage is so concerning. And, and the, the New Testament is clear that many Christians' love for the Lord will grow cold during this time. That we will turn on one another, that we will even hate one another because folks are joining in the rebellion and stepping away from orthodox faith. So Paul is describing a time in history where the God of the Bible and his laws will be despised and be openly opposed. The concepts of Christian morality will be completely reviled, okay? With all that said, he says this is going to be caught up in one person in verse 3. The rebellion's going to come along with the lawless one or the lawless man, he who has no law. This person, this antichrist is going to be the physical embodiment of humanity's rebellion against God. This is going to be the physical embodiment, this lawless one, of mankind's rebellion against God. Now, before we go any further, I know that a lot of you have been raised in church and you're looking at this word law and you're initially thinking the law of Moses, and that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the law of Moses that would be practiced by any good Jewish person, okay, who, who claims that Yahweh or Jehovah, same thing as their God. This law that we're talking about right here, when we talk about lawlessness within the New Testament, is the law that God has written on each one of our hearts, the moral law, the ethical law, that which is ingrained in each human being according to Matt, or Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following that the lawless one is not going to necessarily be an anarchist. The Antichrist is going to be someone who is amoral, unethical, who is going to take the rebellion against God and say, yes, in me you have your Messiah. In me you have your anointed one. It says here that he will oppose and exalt himself above all expressions of religion and every, every type of worship. So this Antichrist fellow, this lawless one, is going to look at the religions and faiths of the world and exalt himself above them and oppose them. So we're not going to be alone, we Christians, when the time comes for this Antichrist to come to power, because he is going to say that he is above and opposes all of the religions of the world, which he will view as stupid and vile and untrue. And in the end, he'll say, because they're stupid and vile and untrue, put your allegiance in me. Put your trust in me. I'm your savior. I'm your God. I'm your God. Now, for those of you who really love theology, I'm going to give you one extra bit of information here. It says when, he says, when the Bible says here that he will declare himself to be God, it doesn't say the God. It says a God. All right? So if he's in the business of saying that Yahweh God and his son Jesus and his spirit are hooey, he's not going to then go ahead and claim to be Yahweh God. That's not what he's going to do. He's just going to say that I am the supreme power of the universe. So it could be that many people who are atheists who don't believe in a God look at this savior figure and go, I like him. I could swear my allegiance to him. And it could be those who say, well, I believe in a God, and I, 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 I believe that there's something supernatural, but I can't see it. He must be the closest thing. We'll put their faith and their allegiance in this fella as well. 
Now, I don't want any of us to be concerned about the Antichrist today. He's not knocking on your door. Because Jesus says, and the scriptures say, that he is destined for destruction. He's not going to win. His rebellion and the rebellion that he embodies is not going to be the end of the story. It says immediately, but don't worry, this guy's destined for destruction. All Jesus has to do is go, and he's going to be done. But what the Bible says here is even though this fella is destined for destruction and his rebellion is destined to lose, there are going to be those in verse 10 who are sinful, who take pleasure in unrighteousness. And in this Antichrist fella, they're going to get the God that they always wanted. They're going to they're get the one that they always wanted. Now I want us to focus in for the rest of our time here on a short phrase in verse 7, if you're still looking down at your Bibles. There's a short phrase in verse 7 that I believe really holds some information for us today and really puts us in a position to get us thinking. It says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That word lawless is the word that Jesus and Paul have in common from Matthew chapter 24 and here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So the question is, does that mean the world's going to descend into anarchy? And we've already answered that, no. The world is not necessarily going to descend into anarchy because that's not what's taking place here. Will there still be governments at the end of time? According to Daniel chapters 8 and Revelations chapters 1 through 22, yes, there'll be governments. There'll be people who have power. There'll be people who can field armies. That's not what we're talking about here with lawless one. The definition of lawless, and I'll have it up for you on the screen as far as the Bible is concerned, is to ignore and or despise the counsel of God regarding right behavior. That's lawlessness. To say that, you know what, there is really no moral code written on my heart. There is no God who has impressed the the right and the wrong in me. I am just a descendant of one who crawled out of the swamp. And therefore, there is nothing in me, innate, that God has put there. Therefore, anybody who tries to tell me that there is a counsel from God on how to behave rightly, I will ignore that. That's the lawlessness of Scripture. That's to say, I don't want to have anything to do with anything having to do with a God who has something to tell me about what to do. Now, this word mystery is also an important word. Because mystery, as far as the ancient world is concerned, is not mystery like today. We're not going to be thinking about Columbo coming to solve anything when we're talking about the word mystery in the scriptures. Mystery in the New Testament is used to denote something that has taken place just behind the scenes. Something that is just, if you will, behind the veil of our seen and known world. And Paul says the mystery... The working out of this lawlessness is taking place right now behind the scenes, okay? In fact, this word mystery is also used in the books of Ephesians and Colossians to say that the mystery of the gospel is being revealed. What God has been doing behind the scenes is now being moved into the forefront. It says in Colossians 1.26 that we, the saints, those holy ones of God, if you will, we have now seen the mystery, for what it is. But right now, in our present age, as we sit here, the mystery of lawlessness is being enacted. 
And I define the mystery of lawlessness as follows. Once again, it'll be up on the screen. The mystery of lawlessness is the supernatural struggle to convince men and women to be in open rebellion toward their creator. I'm going to leave that up there for a minute. I'm going to let you take that in. The mystery of lawlessness, what's taking place behind the scenes of so much of what is happening in our world is a supernatural struggle to convince men and women to be eventually in open rebellion toward their creator. That's why Paul says in verse 9, and this is the working of Satan, this lawlessness and this antichrist, this lawless one, he is going to be the one that perfectly manifests this mystery of lawlessness. But just for now, he is being restrained. And we know why this man of lawlessness is being restrained, because when the man of lawlessness comes, the end will come. When the physical incarnation, this antichrist, when his incarnation takes place, if you will, and I know that we only want to use that incarnation word in response to God, so let's just say, when this antichrist fella comes to the fore, the millennia-long rebellion against God is coming to a head. This antichrist lawless one, he is the exact opposite of Christ, who was the incarnation of God's abiding love for us. The antichrist will be the incarnation, if you will, of humankind's rebellion against God. He'll be the savior that humanity has always wanted, one that will push them towards rebellion and lawlessness. So what is taking place just behind the scene? What is this working of Satan? What is the enemy trying to do in the lives of both Christians and the lives of people who are in the world who do not profess Christ? It's very simple. It's to cast doubt. It's to create separation. It's to do things to have good-thinking, rational people like you and I who believe in Christ and believe in God and believe the good things of Scripture He wants us to begin to question those things. He wants us to begin to look at those things and say, you know, that really doesn't fit my paradigm for how life should be. Now, we don't have time this morning, but I encourage you this week, if you really want to dive into the mystery of lawlessness and what Satan does and and what he does behind the scenes, go ahead and read the story of the garden from Genesis chapter 3. Look at the ways in which the enemy tries to tempt Eve and Adam, and what he does to try to create this rebellion. If you want to go one step further, you can look, if you will, at Luke chapter 4 and look at the temptation of Christ. Because the things that are going on in the garden when Satan tries to tempt Adam and Eve are the same tactics that he tries to use when he's trying to tempt Jesus. We know what he does, we know what he says. And we know the response that he is trying to get us to. And I've just put them up in a nutshell here for you today, just, to, just to, as food for thought about how to stay on the right side of the law and not get on the wrong side. This is what Satan does in both those accounts, both at the temptation of Adam and Eve and the temptation of Christ. He first asks the question and says, does God really mean what he says? Did he really mean it? Did God really say, Eve? Did God really say, Jesus? Is God really serious about what he says? The enemy says God's word isn't true. Look at Genesis chapter 3. He calls God a liar. He says God lied. God's word is not true. If you do that, it will not have the consequences that God lays out. Just trust me. 
God's the liar. He says God's the immoral one. You, you know what? God is the immoral one. He doesn't want you to engage in those activities because he wants to hold it over you. He's the problem. You're not immoral. He's immoral. And the one that's been helping people to stumble from Adam and Eve until today, God is keeping you from happiness. God is the one keeping you from really living your life. Stop worrying and enjoy your life. Did you see it? What's on the bus was in the garden. He's trying to keep you from enjoying a full life. And then finally, what he says to Adam and Eve and what he says to Christ, you can be your own God. You can be your own God. Go ahead and defy him. He doesn't want you to defy him because you'll end up just like him. All this I will give to you if you'll just switch your allegiance to me. This is the working of Satan. And this is the mystery of lawlessness as it's being revealed in the world both at the beginning of time and the end of time. These are the statements that can begin to put us in open rebellion towards creator God. These statements are crazy. They're outrageous. But sometimes we believe them. God's law is not meant to hurt us. God's law is not meant to stomp on our happiness. God's ways of doing things instead bring order and protection and direction and wisdom. And he pulls this order and protection and direction and wisdom from our disorder and pain and dysfunction and foolishness. That's why God has things for us to do and has things for us not to do because he loves us. That's why God wrote us a massive Bible and used inspired people to bring his word towards us because he wanted to bring order and protection and wisdom into the ways in which we live our lives. His law is good. His law is good. It is meant to do the good for us. The enemy seeks to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But Jesus came that we might have life and life more abundantly. That's what the Bible teaches, and that is the truth. There are consequences for living our life in the lies that were just on the screen bad consequences. On the other side of that is true blessing for those of us who don't buy into the mystery of lawlessness, but to whom the mystery of the gospel has been revealed. That God loves us, that he wants the best for us, that he has a purpose for our lives, and he wants us to thrive. That's what God wants for each and every one of us. How is it then that we can make sure that we're on the right side of the law? How can you and I be sure that we are not engaging in the mystery of lawlessness, but are instead acting as ones to whom the mystery of the gospel has been revealed? I want to tell you that the first way to do that is to cling to God's law, even when it is inconvenient or unpopular. 
If we are to be people who are not engaged at some point in the rebellion that's taking place, we must be very clear about what rebellion looks like and what right living looks like as well. And I want to tell you there are things that on the face of it, when you get into the scripture and when you begin to look at what God really wants you to do and how he really wants you to live your life that are just plain, seemingly inconvenient. They don't fit the plan that you have for your life. We don't need to look at all the ills of society to find where lawlessness begins. All we need to do is look into our own homes and our own lifestyles and our own understanding of what God wants from us to get to this point. We must be folks who cling to the law of God even when on the face of things it seems inconvenient. I know it is not easy to have God to tell you do something. There are many things in my life that, and as preachers have preached and teachers have taught and as I've read the scriptures, and I think, God, I don't want to do that. That sounds terrible. Love my neighbor as myself. Yuck. And I know how some of you get around that. You just make sure that your neighbors don't know you exist. If your neighbors do not know that you are there, there is no one that you have to love. And if there's no one that you have to love, that means none of your time will be taken from you. So you race from your Honda Civic into the side door. And then you race back out of the Honda Civic. When people wave at you, you go like this. Because if you admit that you have neighbors, the gospel and the word of God, the law of God will call you to love them. And that would be inconvenient. See, God calls us to do things all the time. It's his law. He's trying to say, get outside of yourself and do what I put you on this earth to do. You don't like when anybody quotes Ephesians 2.10, the fact that you're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for you to do. You don't like the idea that God keeps talking in my ear about serving him. Yes, I have talents. Yes, I have abilities. But I'd rather not use them. I have TV to watch. No, God, I know that you've given me that talent, and I know that it could be used for your kingdom, but uh, I've been binge-watching the show, and it's good. I don't have time for that nonsense. And God's in your ear saying, you're my workmanship. I created you to do good works which I prepared in advance for you to do. Are you really that busy that I can't have any of your time? Or God begins to knock on your heart's door and say, hey, listen, it's time to put your money where your mouth is. Are you giving to my kingdom? No, God. No, I am not. I'm not interested in doing that. You have my heart, but my wallet belongs to me. It's not easy to follow what God has said all the time, is it? It's not convenient, but it's right. But it's right. Or if God calls us not to do something, if the Bible says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, what do we say? God, did you really mean that? No, God didn't mean swearing. He just meant dirty jokes. I've studied that passage. I know it well. So I'm going to continue to swear, but I am not going to tell dirty jokes unless I'm with my friends. 
which goes further into the passage. Let me explain it to you. Do you ever notice that Christians only want to become Bible scholars when they want to give themselves license to do something they know they shouldn't? The most heated debates in Scripture doesn't have to do with theology or, or some of the, the deep things of God. It usually has to do with, I have something that I want to do, so I'm going to read the Bible a little bit differently than the rest of my church and the pastor so that I can do those things. This is the mystery of lawlessness at work in us, folks. We only believe the part of the law that we like or is convenient, and I want to tell you, on the other side of that lawlessness is freedom. On the other side of stepping away from God's statutes and his ordinances is blessing. You know, there was a guy named David. He was called a man after God's own heart. He wrote most of the Psalms. And he wrote the longest chapter in the whole Bible. Psalm 119. Do you know what the topic is of Psalm 119? Love for the law of God. It's not mercy? No, it's not mercy. It's not salvation? No, it's not salvation. The longest chapter in the whole Bible is a guy going, God, you are so wise. And I love that you have chosen to share your wisdom with each and every one of us. To make sure that we are on the right side of the law, we have to grow to know and love God's law. We have to love the wisdom that God has for us. And to say with blinders on, if God has said it, I will do it. Because God is right. He is wise and he is good. David wrote at the beginning of Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2, Happy are those whose way is blameless, whose walk, who walks in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep his decrees and who seek him with his whole heart. The Atheist Bus Campaign tells me that to ignore the law of God is to bring happiness. But the scripture says to love the law and keep it with my whole heart is the path. To happiness. I want to tell you folks today, on the other side of seeming inconvenience and unpopularity is freedom. There's freedom. There is a blessing in pursuing right behavior as God defines it. Because if you begin to walk into those five phrases that the enemy wants you to walk into, the rebellion will grow and the space between you and God will grow. And all of a sudden, you'll be standing away from the God who loves you and wants what's best for you. My mom used to quote it to us as children, and it is still true today. Sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And it will make you do things that you never thought that you would do. Why would we believe the lie? Why would we exchange the truth of God for a lie? Why would we not go straight to God's word and say, if God said it, I will do it because he loves me and I trust him. Would you give up your plan today if it meant standing within the law of God? Would you give up that thing that you are clinging to 
as your rock and your steady foundation if it meant that you were now putting your life on the rock and steady foundation that is Christ? Would you step out and obey the voice of God in your life if it meant that he would bring you into a sense of purpose and meaningfulness that you have never known before doing the little things that matter not? Would you do it? Because that's the promise. On the other side of the inconvenience and unpopularity of God's law, you can say things like, God has helped me conquer my anger. God has helped me conquer my insecurity, conquer my dependency, conquered my lust, conquered my controlling nature, conquered my fear. God wants you to be able to overcome all which holds you back today. Will you listen to his voice and will you obey it? Don't become part of the mystery of lawlessness, folks. It leads to only one place. Love the Lord your God and his word. Love his law, and it will go well with you. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of sinners, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the streams of living water, which yields fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither. Everything he does prosper, prospers, not so the wicked. I encourage you today, you come to church a lot and you hear God loves you, true story. God wants the best for you, true story. God wants to make you new, true story. God wants to give you a home in heaven, true story. God wants you to live your best life for today and it means following his word. True story. True story. True story. Let us be people who stay on the right side of the law by believing in his word and trusting that it's true. Would you bow your heads with me today?